Does Borrelia burgdorferi mean anything to you? It should. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is international Lyme disease expert, Dr. Ray Stricker. Dr. Stricker is the medical director of Union Square Medical Associates in San Francisco. He also serves as the president of the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. Welcome. Thanks, Leslie. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Stricker, Borrelia burgdorferi sounds like something you might order at a northern Italian restaurant. Uh, I know that's not true. What is it? Well, you certainly wouldn't want to eat it or get infected with it. Um, Borrelia burgdorferi is a corkscrew-shaped bacteria that's known as a spirochete, uh, and it is the agent of Lyme disease. Uh, spirochetes, now, there are much more famous versions of spirochetes than this, aren't there? Uh, there are. The most famous spirochete is called Treponema pallidum, which is the uh, bacteria that causes syphilis. Certainly everybody's heard of that. And Borrelia is a distant cousin of that uh, spirochete. And it only lives in ticks? Well, it only is transmitted by ticks as far as we know, but there actually have been reports of the spirochete being present in mosquitoes and fleas and other types of insects. Oh, but as far as we know, they're not vectors. Exactly. No one's ever proven that it's transmitted by those insects. Okay. Well, that sounds like that's good news. That is. (laughs) So can you culture this bug easily? Well, that's one of the problems. You really can't. There are some laboratory strains of the spirochete that can be cultured, but most of the strains that are found in the wild are very resistant to culture, and that's been a problem in terms of developing a good diagnostic test. Mm-hmm. What's so unique about this bug? Uh, well, Borrelia has a very complicated genetic makeup. It has a single linear chromosome and then nine so-called plasmids, and plasmids are these extra chromosomal uh, pieces of DNA that can help the bug evade the immune system and burrow into tissues and become uh, refractory to treatment. Now, are there any antibiotic-resistant strains? Classically, we thought that there weren't, but in recent years we've seen some studies of uh, strains that are resistant to certain antibiotics, including uh, the fluoroquinolones and the macrolides. So I think we're starting to see resistant strains of the spirochete. Now, typically, do you see infections, uh, actually co-infections, with Borrelia? Uh, You do very often. Ticks have been called sewers of infection, and basically (laughs) anything that they feed on, they can transmit to people. Uh, So there are some co-infections that are seen fairly commonly, including uh, something called Babesia, which is a cousin of malaria, something called Ehrlichia, another bacteria called Anaplasma, and then the most recent co-infection is Bartonella. And these may complicate the picture in Lyme disease. How does one go about figuring all this out diagnostically? Well, that is a problem. The tests for uh, these co-infections are not very standardized, and there are some labs that specialize in testing for tick-borne diseases. There are a number of them around the country, and that's really the best way to make the diagnosis. Other than that, Uh, You have to be suspicious if you see symptoms that are consistent with these co-infections. So are these tests blood tests, or do you have to actually get fluid from the joint or the affected area? Well, they are blood tests, but they're antibody tests. Again, it's very difficult to culture these organisms, so we rely on the immune response to the, the, the bacteria, and that is not always that reliable, unfortunately. Okay, now how do we eradicate the spirochete? Well, uh, that is also problematic. Again, if the infection is caught early and uh, it's treated early, treatment is often successful with a short course of therapy. 
But if the infection has been there for months to years, which is what we often see, then it may take months to years to eradicate um, the, the organisms. But I was taught that a single dose of doxycycline prevents it. Well, that is unfortunately a misconception that was based on an article that was published a number of years ago that showed that if you have a known tick bite but not a rash, a single dose of doxycycline can prevent the rash from occurring. The problem with that study is that they only followed their patients for about six weeks. So it's conceivable that in spite of that single dose, these patients develop later disease. There's no long-term follow-up. And also, the study has been misinterpreted as showing that if you have a tick bite and you come in with a rash, then a single dose of doxycycline would be sufficient. And that's not at all what the study said. So that study has led to significant mistreatment of patients with Lyme disease. Ray, how did this bug get its name? Uh, Well, it's named after a microbiologist, uh, Willie Bergdorfer, who was the gentleman who identified this spirochete in ticks. He was doing some work for the Rocky Mountain Labs, and he happened to notice that there was this strange-looking corkscrew-shaped bacteria in some of his ticks. And uh, from there, he uh, made the association between the bacteria and Lyme disease. And that was in the early 1980s. Oh, so all this is relatively new. Oh, it's very new. For an infectious disease, this is really recent history. And there's really been an explosion of information about Lyme disease. There are more than 18,000 articles in the medical literature about it. And it's really a disease that's only been around for about 30 years, at least in in this country. Now, there have been articles, uh, and I know much controversy, that chronic antibiotic treatment is pointless. Uh, there is a lot of controversy over that, and again, that was spurred by a, an article in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2001 that looked at a very highly selected cohort of Lyme patients that had had the disease for almost five years. Those patients were treated with a three-month regimen of antibiotics, and they failed to improve on that treatment. And unfortunately, based on the findings in that study, we now have the perception that long-term treatment of Lyme disease doesn't work. So the problem is that, first of all, there really wasn't any long-term treatment in that study. There was a month of IV therapy and two months of low-dose oral therapy. That really doesn't qualify as long-term for a patient who's had Lyme disease for 10 years, let's say. And also, these were patients who had already been treated with this regimen, had failed this regimen, so it was really a retreatment study with antibiotics that didn't work. So the study was guaranteed to fail, but unfortunately that study is viewed as the gold standard for how not to treat Lyme disease, and it's really unfortunate. Uh, There are two additional studies that have been published in abstract form, but they haven't been published in their entirety, and those studies suggest that longer therapy may be useful in patients with chronic Lyme disease, but we have a long way to go with this issue. Well, why don't you fill us in on the current uh, state-of-the-art about antimicrobial treatment in Lyme disease? Well, uh, according to the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society, which published its guidelines for treatment in 2004, there are a number of regimens that are effective for patients with chronic Lyme disease. The basic principle is that if you have a patient who has predominantly muscle and joint symptoms, then oral antibiotics are effective. If you have a patient who has neurologic symptoms or neuropsychiatric symptoms, then you need to use parenteral antibiotics, either intramuscular or intravenous therapy, 
to treat those patients. And how do you go about choosing which antibiotic? Well, that's really the art of treating Lyme disease. Uh, You kind of have to tailor the regimen to the symptoms and to the patient and to the comorbidities and to the co-infections. So there are a lot of factors that go into that, which is why our organization is so busy. Yes. So I see so many areas of problems here. We have kind of vague, wandering symptoms. We don't have a really good test for this disease. It looks like a lot of other diseases, a lot of misinformation about kind of treatment and duration of treatment. What tips can you give the primary care physician out there in a relatively high tick area? Well, it is really a setup for a controversial illness, isn't it? The tips that I would give to primary care physicians is to have a high index of suspicion for this disease, especially in a patient who has rather unusual symptoms that don't really fit together, uh, who may have been in an area uh, with tick exposure or maybe out hiking and camping and exposed to ticks, and then uh, to consult with the ILADS website at www.ilads.org which has lots of information for practitioners concerning Lyme disease and how to get more information about the diagnosis and treatment of the disease. So ILADS is I-L-A-D-S. It's the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. I-L-A-D-S dot com? Dot org. Dot org. Let's back up. I don't want to get Lyme disease. How how can I avoid getting it in the first place? Well, I always tell my patients just to hang out by the pool because ticks hate chlorine. So if you're in the pool, you can't get Lyme disease. But that's really not practical for most people. When you're out in so-called tick habitat, which is basically anywhere in the woods or uh, grassy or wooded areas, uh, you should wear light-colored clothing that makes it easier to spot ticks. Uh, You should tuck your pants legs into your socks so that ticks can't get under your pants. And you should stay in the middle of trails to avoid the the grass along the trails. And then do frequent tick checks, especially if you're out with children. Uh, Children actually have the highest infection rate of Lyme disease. So you have to be very vigilant when you're with your kids out in the woods. Mm-hmm. Does it help to wear a hat, I presume? It does help to wear a hat, um, but I have to tell you that ticks are very resourceful. If they want to get to you, they will. I have uh, patients who are members of the Park Service here in California, and they report that they go out with hazmat suits on, essentially, and they'll come back and there'll be a tick crawling around on them. So uh, it's very, very difficult to avoid getting ticks on you, and you have to be very vigilant and uh, be, be sure you do tick checks when you're out in the woods. Does it hurt when they bite you? It usually doesn't hurt, and that's a very interesting topic. Tick saliva has a number of substances in it, including a very potent anesthetic. And in fact, there's a company in England that's trying to make a product, an anesthetic product, out of tick saliva because this uh, anesthetic is so powerful. So when a tick bites you, you really don't feel it because it injects this anesthetic, which anesthetizes the area, and then you can't feel it. It also injects, as part of the saliva, an anticoagulant that keeps the blood from clotting and keeps the blood flowing so that it can feed. And it also injects an immunosuppressive substance that keeps the immune system at bay. So all of those products in tick saliva help to transmit the Lyme spirochete. Crafty critters, aren't they? Very crafty, very uh, well-developed. Now, do dogs get Lyme disease? Dogs do get Lyme disease, and in fact, veterinarians are getting very aware of, of Lyme disease in dogs, and they do get similar symptoms to human, including lameness, problems with balance and walking. Fortunately, in dogs, there's a vaccine against Lyme disease that's very effective, 
And also treatment of the dogs uh, is effective, although we've had some studies that show that even with treatment, uh, you can recover spirochetes years later from the dog. So treatment may be suppressive, but it may not be curative. Hmm. But this Lyme disease vaccine is not available in humans? The Lyme vaccine is not available in humans. There was a vaccine that was developed in the late 1990s, but it was taken off the market in 2002. The reason given by the company was lack of sales. However, um, there is a evidence that the real reason was a class action lawsuit by a number of patients who received the vaccine and then developed a syndrome that looked just like Lyme disease. So the safety of that vaccine was called into question. Well, I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Ray Stricker. We have been discussing the microbiology and treatment of Lyme disease. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. 